This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Raven Dana. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Raven Dana is a writer, life coach, and card-carrying witch. She has decades of experience in dozens of methods, including radical honesty, remote viewing, dream interpretation, and guided meditation. She's also an experiencer of contact with non-human entities. I had the great good fortune of growing up in a household where what we would call supernatural or paranormal was just part of life. It was ordinary. It was expected and accepted and it didn't stand out in any way other than we paid attention to those things. So, you know, my dad was a funeral director, a mortician and a bomber and an artist and a drummer. My grandmother had prophetic dreams and uh, so we lived in the Hudson Valley. We lived in, I grew up in Yonkers, New York in essentially a one-bedroom tenement apartment with my parents, my grandparents, which were my father's parents, my older sister, and myself. From a very early age, it was just commonplace for my grandmother, for example, to have dreams about things that were going to happen. And she would call relatives and tell them, don't go to that party, or so-and-so is going to get married, or, you know, don't get in that car, there's going to be an accident. And she had an extraordinary uh, high, ac uh, extraordinarily high rate of accuracy. So even though she really never left the house, uh, she, she was the matriarch. She kind of ruled the roost and, you know, family far and wide, even down to second and third cousins, both appreciated and dreaded her phone calls. I'll say it that way. Wow. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And my dad, again, my household was some strange combination of Munster's Adams family and, and six feet under because uh, my dad, the mortician, you know, always said, it's not the the dead you have to worry about it's the living you know don't worry about the dead they're not a problem you know you can kind of ask them to go away and they just mm. go away it's oh, the yeah. living that, that are persistent and i can remember being like pretty young and sitting at the the table eating a bologna sandwich that my grandmother handed me and my father coming in with a brain in a plastic bag a literal brain in a plastic bag complaining that you know the, he just finished this body and now they tell him that they didn't they remember to put the brain back in the cavity come on you know so i'm sitting at the table eating my bologna and poking this human brain so again this extraordinary being ordinary it was just like cool it's like wow this is wow. this is great and um, that brain, by the way, ended up going to uh, the high, the local high school in a, in a pickle jar filled with formaldehyde. <laughs> wow. It is still somewhere today, I'm sure. Um, and it was just, that's the kind of thing that happened. My grandmother w saw her, once I was taking a nap on her bed in the middle of the day, and she was lying there also taking a nap, I woke up, and since uh, I would have to have climbed over her to get off the bed, I just hung out and she suddenly sat up she put her hand on her arm and she said and she started talking to somebody that I couldn't see well and then I sat up and she said oh don't worry it's just uh, Uncle Mac her brother her brother who died uh, uh, of mysterious causes when he was in vaudeville earlier on in life my great uncle Mac for whom my father was named Robert Mac and so then she just got up like it was any other day and went in the living room and talked to my parents about seeing Mac and what he said to her, which I, I don't know what that was. But, you know, and hearing her say, uh, Mac woke me up, he put his hand on my arm and it was so cold it woke me up, but he wanted to talk to me. And that's the only 
part of the conversation that I heard as she went away. And again, this was the ordinariness with which we spoke of these things. My grandfather, when he was in the service, was uh, shot in the head and uh, retreated, hid in this cave. He picked up this shell-shocked rabbit on his way and stuffed it in his coat. And then he'd tell the story about the way, you know, he couldn't kill the rabbit and it was a good thing because some communication that he was having with this little being eventually led him out of the cave and into the field where he was found and taken to an army hospital. Now he lost his tags, he was missing in action for 18 months, but that experience saved his life. So, you know, yet again, there's an, an, another connection with that intuitive, connected, what we would call paranormal experience. It was just ordinary. So for me, having those experiences or seeing something that somebody else couldn't see, I didn't know at that point that other people couldn't see what we saw or feel what we felt. I just thought everybody kind of had this. And from the time I was small, I experienced periodically beings, which now I would call visitors. I would call them the greys. Uh, one, just one really, that would show up at the foot of my bed when I was young. And I'd see him standing at the foot of my bed, his head kind of above the base of the, you know, the bedboard at that, that end. It was um, like a sleigh bed. Mm -hmm. And it was just, he was, he radiated calm. I'll say it that way. I would wake up and be a little startled that I could see, like I could see the light from the outside kind of glittering off these extraordinary, large, dark eyes. And it was at first just a, a little bit like, my thought was, it looks like a praying mantis. It looks like a gray praying, although I couldn't see anything really but the head and the top of the shoulders. But the the calm that rolled off this being, I mean, I, I was occasionally startled, but I can't say I was afraid. I was curious. I wanted to know what it was. Why are you there? Are you a relative? It didn't speak to me, but it would show me images. I could see things in my mind, and I could... Um, feel connected and it, it was just very interesting I would then I would fall asleep if in fact I did fall asleep but I I frame it that way and then have experiences where I would float out the window I would go down by the river which was the Hudson River we were just a few blocks away I would go to this park where there were other beings like that one and I'd see them more at a distance I would be told things that, that I didn't understand, things about the sky, things about the stars. And that being showed up enough that at some point I said to my grandfather, you know, there's this thing that shows up at the end of my bed at night. And he asked me, are you afraid? He said, if you're afraid of it, we'll do something to try to make it go away. And if not, you know, I don't know, it's a gnome or a fairy or a, it's something, you know, it's something but don't worry about it unless it scares you or it acts and you know threatening or anything like that so mm -hmm. it didn't and you know and, and time went on and i saw it pretty regularly until i recognized i realized in school that that the people didn't see what i saw they didn't feel what i felt and i i learned by being shut down by other kids not to talk about it not to reveal what my experiences were and then uh, when I was around, I want to say eight or nine years old, my experience with that visitor, it went away. He, he disappeared for a while. But before he disappeared, I kept asking the question, what is your name? What is your name? And what it told me, what it showed me, 
uh, and it's and actually I heard the words in my head this is what I am not and I saw in capital letters F A R B so of course being a kid I called the being Farb I thought that was its name I didn't understand this is what I am not I just sort of took it in and left it there well years later when I was in high school I was a freshman in high school and I was uh, 13 years old and I was in a biology class and the teacher wrote on the board fish amphibians reptiles and birds and I looked up and saw the capitals spell f-a-r-b Wow I took this in breath like are you kidding me because it had been of course a number of years since I'd experienced that being and and at that moment when I looked up and took that in breath my nose started to bleed and I went oh okay and I excused myself I went to the bathroom I was shaking I thought you know this isn't just something that I saw as a kid this is something real that's coming back into my life and at that point I was a little unnerved I mean I wouldn't say I was terrified but I was just shocked at that moment of how it made it of how it came back to me well, not that far after that, in fact, it was just prior to my 14th birthday, a couple weeks before that. So school starts, you know, in November, my birthday's in February, so it's sometime in, in the winter. I have this experience where I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm sleeping on the top bunk. My sister, uh, who is seven years older, <clears throat> had moved out of the house by then. And so again, the picture is there's this little alcove with bunk beds in it that overlooks the living room where my parents are asleep on a fold-out couch, which is where they slept. There are two large windows that look out into the neighborhood. We're on the top floor, the fourth floor. And one of the windows has a fire escape that goes down, as those tenement buildings always do. And there was a chair in front of that window. So I sat up and saw somebody that at at first I thought was, you know, a burglar, come climbing through that window onto the chair, the fire escape window, and it really terrified me. And I didn't know what to do. I was afraid to wake my parents. I didn't want them to get hurt. I pressed myself back against the wall and sat up. And as it came farther through the window and turned its head to look at me, I realized this is, well, Farb, right? This is that being. This is oh my God, it's back. And so I just sat, I was actually relieved that it wasn't human and still like frightened because I was much older now and more afraid of things and in full conscious awareness. And, and it came to the edge of the bed, the edge of the bunk beds and rose up so I could again see the head and shoulders and more of the body now. And it was just, again, this sensation, this feeling through my body of it's okay. I'm, you know, you're, you'll be fine. It's okay. Like calming and soothing. And there's nothing to be afraid of. And then I had this very dramatic experience of being led through what it would be like and so one member of the family at a time, I had this experience where this member would be gone and that's what life would be like. Then this member would be gone and that's what life would be like. And it was a very visceral, emotional experience. And the very last person was my mother when, that, when he took me through that process. And then he told me, again, in my mind, not with words, that when you need me, I will be here. I will always be here. And 
and then like I nodded to him and stayed pressed against the wall and he went down and then I didn't look over the side of the bed I didn't watch to see if he left the same way he came in I have no idea but about three weeks after that well um, one week exactly after I turned 14 my mother died suddenly and how it happened was that she had had a heart attack a couple years before but was doing fine anticipated a full recovery at home uh, it was snowy that morning I said to my parents hey you know can I stay home from school they didn't care they said sure I climbed down from that bunk bed to where my mother was sitting on the couch sewing something and she her just her eyes rolled back and she fell back and she started to turn blue she had had a stroke and in that moment again I remembered oh this is what it was about so my my father came in my grandfather came in they moved her to the floor they started to do CPR they you know they called an ambulance and I walked through the the apartment into my grandparents bedroom and just just said okay out loud like okay so you know so where are you you know I mean I, I did not at that moment have this experience of the visitor coming back but I did have this awareness I had a very deep awareness that I was being listened to that I was heard that my mm. cry was heard and from that point on you know uh, so again my mother did die and she was buried on what would have been her 46th birthday but from that, we'll call it a moment of awakening, I guess, that through that trauma and through that experience, I began receiving regular information that was in the form of pictures, of images, of knowing about, it was a variety of things, things about the world, things about politics, which I knew absolutely, utterly nothing about, things about the environment, things about coming wars, things about uh, medicine, things about, uh, so, and some of them, you know, and I, I took notes for a long time, and some of them took many years for me to figure out how accurate they were, but um, that was the way the relationship with the visitors began to move. It moved more in that direction of me receiving specific direct information and then being able to go back eventually and verify it. I mean, even down to being told things about the human body that were not yet discovered, that were, you know, I can remember clearly in school being told, you know, brain cells don't regenerate and then being told, well, yes, they do. They just haven't caught up with this yet. You know, things like that. So it was fascinating. You know, all of that became my sort of background for wanting to bring to other people that level of experience and not so much to get people to contact the visitors, but to get people to open their awareness to the intuition and the instinct and the signs and the signals that I believe all of us possess that ability and when we quiet our noisy minds we have more access we have a deeper ability to see what's already in front of us to appreciate how deeply we're connected to all of nature and each other and other beings in other realms that just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there including speaking with the dead i have had lots of experiences with the dead 
my family was not perfect. We were reasonably dysfunctional, as most families are. My dad was an alcoholic. My grandma was agoraphobic. My grandfather, who had been through the war, had come back a morphine addict. And he actually um, just stopped taking morphine the day he realized that the government was not going to put him in treatment. They were going to provide him with morphine until it killed him. So he threw them out. Uh, he threw the government people out, and he went cold turkey. I, fortunately, I don't remember it. I was about two at the time. But he was a very, very strong and deeply intuitive human being, as, as all my family members were. My mother, in fact, had come from a lineage that included, um, you know, they, her family were Romanian, and my grandmother referred to them as gypsies. So, you know, I, everybody on all sides of the family brought something intuitive or otherworldly to the party. I'll just say it that way. And uh, so that was part of the impetus between coming from a family where I pretty much needed to read people well in order to stay out of the way when things went south to being highly intuitive because it was not only uh, accepted, it was encouraged and just part of life. I came to this place where I decided to use that skill set to work with other people and so my coaching, although um, in some ways it started out as being quite traditional, I am trained in stress reduction and stress management, and I'm certified in radical honesty and have worked radical honesty and have worked a lot with people to bring them into a, a more honest way of being with themselves and each other. And Gestalt therapy, I have training in that area. But through the years, my coaching with people has focused more and more on helping them tap into the intuitive, helping them actually rewire their habits and their patterns by getting underneath them and recognizing the powerful connections that exist to the greater world, to other intelligences, to their own deeper intelligence. And that's where I play. That's where I prefer to work with people. Not that I don't get people just looking for stress management. I do but I always work with them long enough to get the door open in that other area so their life becomes broader and their connections become deeper. And that's really what I feel is kind of my mission in life is to midwife, be the midwife for the between worlds to bring those energies and to bring that information through to the everyday person to help people acknowledge that they're always already connected to those other worlds. So beautiful. Thank you for that amazing summary. Before we move on, I'd like to circle back and ask a handful of questions on some details around what you just shared. The first pertains to the morphology of the visitor, the one you had repeated contacts with. You mentioned gray, but then also a mantis quality to its countenance. Was it a typical gray or... Was it manted? It was more in the traditional gray morphology, but where my relating it to a mantis comes from it was the, the giant eyes, those big slanted eyes, because of course, strangely and interestingly enough, um, I hung out a lot on the roof and we had year after year a praying mantis that would show up, I'm sure it wasn't the same one, but would usually have a praying mantis that would show up on the roof and stay for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of experience having a praying mantis walk around on my hand as almost oh. like a pet. So it reminds, right? 
So it, re it reminded me, like when I would see it at the foot of the bed, it would remind me of that face of the praying mantis, the way mm. their eyes are so big. Now, interestingly enough, though, I have a side story about that. So praying mantises often will come to me out of nowhere. When my oldest daughter, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, my grandfather, her, who said to me that he was going to be alive until I gave him a grandchild, his death notice and her birth certificate crossed in the mail, which is significant for this reason. She was always connected to him and, of course, never knew him. When she was little, like four or five years old, very little, we had a praying mantis fly onto the car, and she wanted to hold it, and I brought it in the car. And she named it George, which was my grandfather's name. And she said, George said, he's always going to be around me. And I thought, are you kidding me? So no. here's, here's this little girl connecting with this praying mantis, naming him George, telling me that she's, he's communicated with her, that even when he flies away, he's going to be around her. And my, all my hair stood up, and I thought, okay, great, I got it. This is like, I, don't, I consciously can't put these puzzle pieces together, but down in there, I get the connections. Yeah. Right visitors, grandfather, daughter, here we go. Yeah. Wow. Regarding the moments when you were in the classroom, the teacher writes F-A-R-B on the blackboard. Your nose begins to bleed. Was your impression that there was an implant? Yes, I had, from the time I was about in fourth grade or so, I had regular nosebleeds to the point where I could bring them on um, sometimes at will by thinking too hard about it. Now, my grandmother at one point said, listen, if your nose keeps bleeding, we're going to have to take you to the doctor and you're going to have to have it cauterized. And I said, what does that mean? She said, they stick something up your nose. And I stopped her and said, no, 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 nothing can go up my nose. So I have no memory of an implant, but I do have this deep-seated terror of something going up my nose. And I did have regular nosebleeds as a child. Mm. And then they leveled off and came back just for special occasions, like that time when I was 13 and she wrote that on the board. Mm. So yes, I think that it was definitely triggered um, to get my attention, yes. The moment when the entity came in through the window, I take it that was the same entity you had repeated contact with? Did it actually physically climb in through the window, or did it float through? I saw it physically climb through the window. That's what scared me. I thought it was a person. So interesting. I presume on other occasions it floated through walls, as we hear routinely. These beings have a different relationship to physics than we do. The high strangeness, bodies passing through solid objects. You know, the, the beings at the foot of the bed, you know, it's sometimes I'd wake up and it would just slowly materialize and become solid or literally float up out through the ceiling because we were on the top floor. And I'd think, okay, it's just going, going home, whatever that meant. Yeah. So why do you suppose on that occasion it chose to crawl instead of materialize or float through the wall? It seems a significant detail. You know, I've thought about that in the past, and I, my imagining about it is that because I was older and because I was frightened, going to be more frightened, especially since I hadn't seen it in a long time and had even by then questioned its validity and, and you know, half written it off as something in my child mind, 
I think it was me, actually, it was telling me, it was showing me by its actions how solid and real it was. Mm -hmm. Like, you cannot mistake something crawling through a window as something else. I think yeah. had, it, had it appeared, I might not have paid attention as deeply as I did. There was just no getting around that what happened happened. So it forced your hand to confront the objective status of this particular contact. So it couldn't be dismissed or interpreted away. No, no. And, and like I said, that's the thing that scared me is the fact that I thought it was a human being crawling in through our fire escape and like, oh my God, now what am I going to do? And I was actually relieved, that sense of relief that I felt when I realized, oh, I know, who, I know what this is, was... Um, yeah, I think that made all the difference in the world, that it gave me this level of acceptance and relief rather than fear at that moment, or at least as much fear. Another quality to your contact with this particular visitor that I find salient is the apparent emotional fluency this particular being seems to have. This is a grievance a lot of experiencers have. The stunted sensitivity some of the non-human entities seem to have. Lack of compassion. Absence of empathy. In your case, it seems not only is this entity sensitive, emotion seems to have been the primary modality of the relationship. Yes, yes, and. Yes, but. Yes, and. It experienced experiences, emotions differently than we do. And I was very aware of that even when it was happening. That it was curious and kind of um, receiving, or how can I say this? Looking back on the experience, I would say that it was reading or interpreting the energy of, of my going through that experience of having one member of my family at a time be absent. Mm -hmm. And it was making assessments and realizations and learning about probably not just me, but humans, based on what I was experiencing. I was clear even at the time it couldn't emote the way that I was emoting, but that it did have this deep abiding, what I want to call empathy, or no, not even quite empathy, this, this deep appreciation for who, who and what I was. Like so I, I definitely felt cared for, even though it couldn't quite experience emotion the same way that I did. I'll say it that way. So although the emotions were not perhaps sourced intrinsically from the visitor, it nonetheless had a, a facility with your emotionality, which provided the nexus between the two of you. Yes. Yes, it could, it could read, I'll say it like read and decode or read and learn from or read and appreciate. It experienced the, my experience, experienced my emotions differently than humans experience emotions. But it did, ha it did experience something. I'll say it that way. You had made reference to your nearness to the Hudson River. Was that a portion of the Hudson Valley? If so, was there any notion of all the UFO activity the Hudson Valley has become known for. Some very famous activity there involving nuclear facilities. Was there any overlay between your time near the Hudson River and those famous Hudson Valley events? Well, I didn't know about any of that until much, much later. But yes, the timeline uh, definitely bumped up against 
you know, when I was there. And and not just that, I had, ex for example, where one of the places I would go to at night with one of the visitors was um, St. Vincent's Park. It was a park that was a, just a couple miles away. And underneath the grade school that I went to, which was St. Mary's School, there were catacombs, there were tunnels. And once down there in the tunnels when I was young, I saw a visitor down there and it scared the pants off me. And I told a teacher and they said, oh, you must have seen a rat, stay with the group, stay with the group. Long story short, many, many years later, I was in my late 20s and I was in uh, Colorado and I was uh, testing, well, I was testing well water for somebody. And he said, we talked about where we grew up and he said, oh, I grew up in that area. In fact, I dug, I dug all of that area. Do you know where St. Vincent was? Yes. Well, did you know that that area was connected to the school way, way in Yonkers? No, I did not. He said, yeah, I couldn't keep anybody on that digging job because they kept swearing to me that there were some kind of gremlins underground there. Now, you know, out of nowhere, this guy starts telling me this story. Wow. Out of nowhere. So... So then upon further research, I discovered that, in fact, those catacombs underneath the school I went to were connected that mile and a half away to the underground area, more catacombs of St. Vincent's, which is where I would go with the visitor sometime at night, which is where, when I got older, I went to, and my grandfather would take me to that place. So not only was there a direct connection, but I got validation from an outside source that just sprang out of nowhere. You know, early construction guy that said he couldn't keep people on the job because they kept seeing things <laughs> underground that scared him. It's like, really? You know, wow. so it was fascinating. So all of that was, a, that, that his, ex, his experiences there were again, all during the time frame of the Hudson Valley sightings. So fascinating. When you related the story about the rabbit, 18 month period of being missing in action, how that rabbit formed this critical presence. Do you feel the rabbit itself was the source or that it was an intermediary, a translator for another consciousness? If the latter, what might have been the source of that consciousness? Is there anything to be said about that? I, I, really, I really have no idea, but my grandfather was always plugged into his ancestors. And, you know, again, Robertson, Scott's, you know, uh, the whole Celtic thing, rabbits, the goddess, it could be anything, could have been anything from anywhere. For yourself in particular, when messages began to arrive, which were validated as they came to fruition, what do you feel is the medium of the message? Is it your implant or consciousness cultivated in meditation? And are the messages generally actionable? or are they simply part of the ecosystem that you abide in? Yeah, it's both ends. Sometimes I'll get memos about something that are that is specifically actionable. Like my grandmother would have dreams, I get I get images and I get things from my clients and friends that sometimes I have to watch how I'm saying it to them, but I do get things that are actionable, but I also get things that are just general, that are that are environmental, or that I are showing me something that's coming up so that I pay attention to it. So it's it's both and. And no, I don't think it has anything specifically to do with the implant. Um, what I do think is that we 
that my system has been, we'll call it tuned, a little bit more clearly to those other frequencies so that I pick up, you know, it's like having regular TV and cable. I think I, I pick up some extra cable channels, right? Because my system's yeah. been tuned that way. And so it's all of those things. It's the contact with the visitors. It's my, my practices. And I think most of all, it's not ever having been taught to dismiss them. And, you know, that's, again, when I talk to people, people can pick up this stuff. You don't need an implant to, to have this deeper level of, of uh, connection be viable in your life. It has to do with unlearning the piece about if you can't see it, it's not there. No, it, it, it is there and it talks to you all the time. And if you let yourself receive the, the signals, you get the information. So, you know, I've had things show up where I've contacted somebody like my grandmother would and said, did you just meet a person that blah, 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 blah? Well, they're not trustworthy. Stay away from them. And then have had it where they don't listen and it plays out and they hire them and there's a disaster. So then they learn to listen to me, right? So, but it could, because it's not me. I mean, I don't take any ownership of that. This is not me. This is whatever moves through me and points me like a compass in somebody else's direction. Even when I work with clients, what I tell them is this. Your unconscious is talking to my unconscious. So I'm talking... You're talking to yourself through my mouth. That's a mm. lot of what happens here. Your sustained contact with this particular gray visitor. I know the extraordinary as ordinary runs in your family intergenerationally. Does contact with grays run in your family intergenerationally? Or is it unique to you? My daughter has had experiences. And I believe, you know, my granddaughter, who is now six, uh, has had experiences that she frames differently. My daughter has had, my both of my daughters actually, uh, my older and my younger daughter, uh, have had experiences with the grays. That, and in fact, when I started doing things with Whitley and they came to, they visited him and came to his house and had, you know, had stories to tell. So um, they have both had experiences with the grays and my granddaughter uh, again, she frames it differently. She definitely has her foot in the between worlds. And she'll say, she'll say, oh, the guy in the woods was talking to me. Or she'll say, today he looked like a skeleton. Like, none of that stuff bothers her. She, at six years old, her favorite thing is, um, you know, Jack the Pumpkin King and Halloween Town. And she is always talking about the things that other people can't see that she can relate to. So, yes, it has definitely passed itself down through the generations. How do you feel about that? There's so much trauma for some experiencers. For others, there isn't. Some people like yourself don't seem to have the traumatic component. Generally, it's positive. But for some people, it takes their life off the rails. Considering all that, how do you feel about your daughters being experiencers? Well, my younger daughter has taken it in a direction of following uh, her path has become the Native American path. And she has done a tremendous amount of study with that and looking at all the uh, cultural history and the uh, uh, and all of the stories about the star people. So that's like she's taken it in that direction. And she actually right now is in North Dakota. Um, that's my younger daughter and my older daughter for the longest time 
wanted it to all go away, wanted to be quote unquote normal, wanted to not have these experiences, wanted to not be afraid because she was very afraid of the visitors. For her, it was very frightening. But now, and she's uh, 40 now, and her daughter, my granddaughter is six, she has now come to a whole other place with it and she is much more at ease and relaxed about the intuitive part of it. She, again, she picks up things on people. She has experiences with the dead. She and I often will share dreams and then call each other having had the same dream. So she, now she just tells them, I don't want to see, like, I'm good with all the other stuff, but I don't want to see you. So she has stopped having any um, contact that way with the visitors for a long time, but she's very happy with all of the other intuitive and, um, you know, extra qualities that she's received. And she's fine with what's going on with her daughter because her daughter is not afraid at all. That brings up a conundrum I'd love to get your perspective on. Sometimes when an experiencer makes a request of these entities, it will be honored. The entities will adjust their behavior to accommodate some experiencers. Other times, it seems no matter what an experiencer does, they can't get the entities to alter their M.O. They plead, beg, demand, but nothing shifts. Why do you suppose there's that divergence, this contrast in dynamics? Well, I don't know, but I have two thoughts about that. The first thought is that I think some people really do want to shut it out and the visitors are not going to let that happen. But they don't just want to not see them. They want to pretend the experience isn't there. They don't want to be opened in that way and it's too late for that. So maybe maybe they get pushed or put in a, a an uncomfortable, terrified position in order to open. That's a possibility. I don't know. And the other possibility is that visitors are their beings. And we know some human beings are kind and some human beings are assholes. So you might just have a being that <laughs> is right, that just has an agenda or isn't going to listen or doesn't have that quality of connection or for whatever reason, right? So it could be one or the other or a combination of both. It's a great point because their distinctness or uniqueness is not synonymous with human uniqueness. We can sometimes make a mischaracterization of them as simply being homogenous, monolithic. That confusion can be tricky to unbraid. For me personally, speaking with hundreds of experiencers over the years, it has slowly become more clear that while it's not human, there is a uniqueness that can be worked with on occasion, and there is individuation. It doesn't necessarily look and feel like human individuation, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. That's right. It's just, you know, a bee, just like you have, pick any species, cats, dogs. You can have a lovey cat or a cat that hisses at everybody who walks by. You know, it doesn't matter what species you are. It matters that that individuality is going to show up in different ways. And so when you have visitors, no matter what kind of visitor, whether they're gray or blue or mantis or this or that, they're going to each one is going to bring something unique to the table because that's who that particular entity is. And we, again, we tend to, with a broad stroke, well, the grays are or the mantis are or the reptilians are. And it's like, yeah, you can't really do that. Any more than you can say all dogs are, all cats are. 
all white people are, all yeah. black people are. That stuff doesn't fly. It's not mm. real. It's just our minds doing the categorization that makes things seem easier that really actually isn't easier at all because we miss the importance of what we don't want to see. I'm super curious to explore with you around the intersection of witchcraft and contactees, abductees, etc. In particular, the ways in which contact with the dead or discarnate entities shares some landscape with some of these non-human entities. To what extent are some of these dimensional neighborhoods adjacent? For example, your entity crawling physically through a window, but then also being able to materialize, vanish, pass through solid walls. Do you feel like your ability to interact with the dead, your sensitivity to discarnate beings, does that naturally extend to non-human entities such as greys? What can be said of how these realms and beings overlay or don't? Yes, no, I think there's definitely a continuum. The more uh, the more I embraced experiences with visitors, the more experiences I had with the dead, the more I embraced my communication with the dead, the more um, information and intuitive urges I received from what I would call the visitors. And again, not just the grays, but you know, as I got older, I had I've had quite a number of experiences that were not just with the grays, but not physical, not, not like I had it with the grays. So the answer to your question is that I think that where the dead live, the frequency, the TV channel, the literal frequency where they live is also a frequency in which some of these other entities, including some of the visitors, live. That, they're, that it's like an address. Right, that it's like being on channel 12 or channel 16. That it's an it's a vibrational uh, address. The same way we live in a three-dimensional system that vibrates at a certain set of frequencies. We know that we can only actually perceive approximately one percent of all the known frequencies, and that's the known frequencies. So those frequencies that vibrate very close to the ones we live in are more accessible to us. So yes, I believe it's a continuum that the, the visitors, the dead, and some other varieties of entities share this particular time-space continuum. For more information on Raven Dana, check the show notes. Chances are you know Kim Wilde from her hit, Kids in America. She left the music business to focus on family. She got married, had kids, and refocused her life. But in 2009, a close encounter with a UFO propelled her back to life as an artist. It inspired and fueled her return to the stage. Wilde was lounging in her backyard when she spotted something truly extraordinary. She recalled the experience to Fox News. Quote, I looked up in the sky and saw this huge bright light behind a cloud, brighter than the moon. I said to my husband and my friend, that's really odd. So we walked down to see if there was any source 
All of a sudden it moved very quickly from 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock, back and forth for several minutes. Whenever it moved, something shifted in the air, but it was silent, absolutely silent." End quote. Wild reports years later she still thinks of it every day. The title of her comeback album? Here Come the Aliens. Wilde believes aliens have been observing humanity for a long time. She speculates they might not be too impressed with what they've seen. Well, at least our music doesn't suck. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, on creativity, spirituality, and non-ordinary experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or check the show notes for a link. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, consider becoming a patron. Patrons have access to scores of exclusive offerings, including TV, film, and music works. I release everything to patrons first, and often it never sees the light of day anywhere else. I use your money to commit and fight crime. Click on the Patreon link in the show notes.
motherfucker who invented the speedo Vesuvian flow, Olympic libido Semen fucking swimming like a school of piranhas Licking the lips says they suckle your mama It's, it's daddy's business I give, I give, I forget this I'm your Moses Pop these black old jumps the poses Flat some, jiggly jet some Blonde zombies, where do we get some? Pom, pums, ready to black out White, white bitches, proud to brown out